And now to introduce today's speaker, we are joined by Dr. Ian Holmes, who is a practicing gastroenterologist with the Oregon Clinic, primarily based on the east side of Portland. Dr. Holmes earned his medical degree at Cornell Medical College in New York, went on to do residency in internal medicine at Stanford, followed by fellowship in gastroenterology and hepatology at University of California, San Francisco, and then completed his advanced endoscopy fellowship at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital in Philadelphia. Welcome back to the Pacific Northwest, Dr. Holmes. Uh, Dr. Holmes has authored multiple articles on endoscopic polypectomy and topics in advanced endoscopy. We are so delighted to have him join us today. Thank you, Dr. Holmes. All right, thank you so much for that introduction and for the opportunity to talk to you guys today. Uh, I'm, my talk is entitled Updates in Gastrointestinal Bleeding and Anticoagulant Management because I really wanted to drill down on a couple of important updated guidelines in the GI literature that have come out in the last one to two years with you guys. And it's been a really great opportunity for me to dig into some of the data behind these guidelines, and I'm excited to share it with you. First off, I have no re relevant financial disclosures. And the two guidelines I wanted to talk about were the uh, ACG clinical guideline, excuse me, the American College of Gastroenterology clinical guideline that came out uh, last summer uh, entitled Upper Gastrointestinal and Ulcer Bleeding. And then maybe the more controversial and interesting one is the Joint American College of Gastroenterology and Canadian Association of Gastroenterology guideline on the management of anticoagulants and antiplatelets during acute gastrointestinal bleeding and the periendoscopic period. So let's start off with the upper GI bleeding guideline. Uh, this is a uh, guideline that hadn't been updated in a while. It was about 2012 when the last edition had come out and there have been quite a few changes in hemostasis, triage, and resuscitation. Uh, like many guidelines coming out these days in GI, these were done with grade methodology and structured primarily their recommendations as a PICO questions, population intervention, comparison, and outcome. And for the critical clinical outcome that the panel decided to look at, uh, they decided to look at further bleeding. Uh, specifically, they did, chose not to use mortality because that's a pretty infrequent outcome in uh, upper GI bleeding, at least in the US, happening in around 2% of cases. So what's new? Well, let's start with uh, risk stratification first. Uh, back in 2012, the ACG had said, uh, with patients with a Glasgow Blatchford score of zero, you might consider discharging them home with close outpatient follow-up. Uh, if you guys need a refresher on the Glasgow Blatchford score, this is a great uh, score for risk stratification, primarily because it doesn't rely on any endoscopic findings. And I've got it there in the table on the right. Uh, it's a combination of the patient's blood urea, nitrogen, hemoglobin, systolic blood pressure, heart rate, uh, observable melanin, syncope, as well as any uh, heart failure or uh, hepatic disease. So looking at the table, you can probably tell it's really hard to score a zero. You really have to be pretty healthy and in good shape. And 
most studies that have looked at this have suggested around 3 to 22% of patients with upper GI bleed might actually reach a score of zero. So a pretty small fraction. So th this time around, the panel said, well, is there any room for improvement? Uh, they still wanted to get this sensitivity uh, of around 99% or so to make sure that people uh, who were being discharged did not require a hospital-based intervention and certainly didn't experience mortality, but was there a little bit more room uh, for patients to go home? And the new recommendation now is that patients with a GBS of zero or one could be just considered for uh, outpatient discharge with close follow-up. And that's based on a couple of studies that have come out. Uh, the one on the left is a study from Scotland, from Glasgow, uh, that was published in The Lancet that sort of served as the basis for the original recommendation for a GBS of zero. Uh, this was a study where a, gr a group in Scotland had instituted a rule to discharge home patients with a score of zero. And before they uh, had put in the rule, 105 of the patients that they observed with a score of zero, uh, zero of them required any sort of hospital-based intervention. After the rule went into place, all 84 who were discharged home uh, did not require any hospital-based intervention or died. Uh, the big new updates, though, have been one article from uh, the BMJ Open that came out uh, about four or five years ago now, which was a retrospective case series of patients with a GBS of zero to one. Uh, and of those 103 patients they examined, none of them required a hospital-based intervention. Or Although when they loosened up that score to a score of zero to two, around 8% had some sort of um, uh, untoward outcome, I would say. So they thought potentially the perfect threshold was in the zero to one range. And then the, uh, the Scottish were back at it again in BMJ in 2017. They reviewed over 3,000 patients with an upper GI bleed uh, and used a number di of different risk stratification scores to really see what performed the best. And they found that the GBS was the, uh, the top performer of all the compared scores with an area under the receiver operating curve of 0 0.86, so pretty good, uh, with a sensitivity of 98.6% uh, and a specificity of 34.6% for uh, not requiring any sort of hospital-based intervention. Uh, and that's with a, uh, a range of zero to one. So has, this was the reason to kind of bump things up a little bit, potentially capture a few more patients who are gonna do fine without actually needing to come into the hospital. When it comes to transfusion, the threshold of seven grams per deciliter is still king. Um, the uh, Villanueva trial from New England Journal that served as the basis for this restrictive threshold actually came out after the last set of guidelines. And if you recall, this was a, a randomized trial that compared uh, seven grams per deciliter versus nine grams per deciliter and found that the restrictive transfusion threshold required fewer transfusions and lower mortality and less recurrent bleeding. Uh, so a pretty fantastic outcome. Uh, meanwhile, in the interim, there was this trigger trial that came out in 2015 that actually showed no difference with restrictive threshold but there were a lot of methodological issues with this. They used a threshold of eight for restrictive and 10 for uh, more liberal transfusion, uh, but they actually randomized by site instead of by patient. So three hospitals did liberal, three hospitals did restrictive, and there was a lot more recruitment in the liberal side and potentially a lot less compliance with the liberal threshold. 
So they found no particular difference, but uh, it's not clear how strong methodologically it was. So hence the panel mostly considered the Villanueva trial when making this recommendation. A few important caveats though, uh, unstable patients, exsanguinated patients, depending on how it was defined, these, they were all excluded from these randomized trials. So you don't have to wait until seven grams per deciliter to start transfusion if you think someone can't wait. Um, likewise, there's still this question of maybe using a higher threshold for patients with cardiovascular disease. There was a meta-analysis of a couple small studies of patients with acute coronary syndromes and anemia undergoing uh, catheterization that suggested a uh, slight, uh, uh, not statistically significant trend towards increased mortality when they were allowed to drift lower than eight grams per deciliter versus higher. So the uh, panel suggested that it might be preferable to go for a higher threshold for cardiovascular disease. And this is similar to the previous guidelines. Probokinetics are still in the updated guidelines and the main one is erythromycin. That's given 20, 250 milligrams about 20 to 90 minutes before endoscopy. There was a pretty large meta-analysis of eight randomized trials that showed this led to a decreased need for repeat endoscopy and potentially a shorter per, uh, duration of hospitalization. But uh, it's worth noting that erythromycin can prolong the QT interval. So uh, anyone with significant cardiovascular disease, concurrent antiarrhythmic therapy, or QT prolongation at baseline was excluded and probably should not be receiving erythromycin. Uh, and interestingly, uh, metoclopramide or Reglan, which we do use not infrequently off-label as a prokinetic for this uh, same indication, didn't have very good data and uh, the panel could not reach a recommendation about using Reglan. So next up, PPI, obviously we use it all the time in GI bleeds and uh, we use it before endoscopy. And what's the evidence for it? Well, it turns out it's actually not that great. Uh, the panel couldn't reach a recommendation, uh, but there's a, a few caveats that go into that. Uh, there are kind of three main randomized control trials that were used in this recommendation, but two of them were a little iffy because they uh, kept patients on placebo after endoscopy, which as we'll discuss later, it's really not standard of care. And so it was a little hard to really compare apples to apples in that situation. But there was a trial from uh, Hong Kong and the New England Journal in 2007 that showed with uh, omeprazole 80 milligrams followed by a drip before endoscopy, there was no benefit in further bleeding uh, or mortality versus placebo. Uh, but when a meta-analysis was done of these randomized trials and even just within the Hong Kong trial itself, there was a reduced need for uh, endoscopic hemostasis at that index endoscopy. So potentially downgrading the severity of these ulcers from you know, an actively oozing visible vessel to maybe a clean ulcer base or something like that. So based on that, as well as the um, you know, biological plausibility, and we'll get into it about uh, PPIs being useful after endoscopy to prevent further bleeding, the panel said, yeah, we couldn't reach a recommendation, but we should probably still be doing this. Next up is when should we be doing upper endoscopy? Do we need to be rushing in overnight? Can they wait till the morning? What should we be doing? Uh, the new guidelines say that we should be doing it within 24 hours. There used to be a suggestion that 
your really sick patients, your hemodynamically unstable ones, your, you know, maybe someone with bad cirrhosis, maybe they should be getting an endoscopy sooner within 12 hours, but that actually got dropped from the new guidelines. Um, there's a kind of murky data to both sides. Uh, there wasn't any randomized trials that compared directly this 24 hour threshold uh, uh, versus waiting longer than 24 hours for upper endoscopy. But there was a good randomized trial of uh, uh, less than 12 hours versus greater than 12 hours that uh, showed no reduction in further bleeding or mortality. And there was also a large Danish cohort looking at sort of optimal time to endoscopy at, at, where they found that in the six to 24 hour window was kind of the sweet spot for the hemodynamically unstable patients, whereas 12 to 36 hours was better for patients who were stable but had a number of comorbidities, ASA classification three to five or so. And then there was a, another trial from that same group in Hong Kong comparing endoscopy within six hours, kind of blazing fast turnaround versus uh, six to 24 hours in your really sick bleeders, you know, a GBS of 12 or higher. And that showed that there was more frequent endoscopic hemostasis being performed early, but there wasn't really any change in further bleeding or mortality. So trying to weigh all of this together, the panel said, okay, less than 24 hours is probably the threshold. Uh, patients who are maybe a little more unstable, sicker, you might still think about doing earlier, but they couldn't reach a recommendation for that part. So that brings us up to the time of endoscopy. So uh, just to review where we are at this point, your super clinical, you know, low clinical risk patients with a GVS of zero to one, they might be able to go home with very close outpatient follow-up, ideally within a couple of days. Uh, if they're not low clinical risk, they should be admitted. Uh, we should be transfusing them up to a hemoglobin of greater than seven, paying attention to resuscitation, uh, potentially giving them a prokinetic like erythromycin, and they couldn't really reach a recommendation for or against pre-endoscopic PPI, but we should probably still be doing it. And then we be, should be doing an endoscopy within 24 hours of presentation. So at the time of endoscopy, what should we be doing? What's the best method to take care of an actively bleeding ulcer? This might get a little too inside baseball, but I'll try and keep it interesting for uh, everyone, but certainly for the gastroenterologists in the audience. Uh, this was a nice chance to kind of dig into the data uh, behind uh, why we do what we do when we're scoping. Uh, we know for sure that a patient with an ulcer that's uh, got an actively spurting visible vessel or got active oozing should definitely get some sort of endoscopic hemostasis. The number needed to treat in a large meta-analysis in this scenario was two, so very, very good. Uh, whereas someone with a visible vessel that's not actively bleeding, also should still be getting endoscopic hemostasis with a number needed to treat of around five. Uh, the controversy still comes up in adherent clot, which was also controversial back in the old guidelines in 2012. Um, there uh, have been a couple of randomized trials trying to answer this question, but they've all been small and they've shown conflicting results. There were a couple of American trials uh, that suggested endoscopic hemostasis revert, uh, reduced further bleeding uh, for adherent clots, but they were maybe a little less rigorous about what they did with the non-endoscopic hemostasis management in terms of not really using high-dose PPI afterwards, maybe not trying too hard to irrigate the clot off before they started throwing clips on there. Uh, so there was another trial from Hong Kong that uh, suggested that uh, if you were 
aggressive with your irrigation. You gave them a high dose PPI afterwards. There really wasn't much further rebleeding. So with all of that in place, the panel said, ah, we still can't really reach a recommendation for a herin clot. So it sort of remains dealer's choice for the gastroenterologist. Uh, likewise, flat spots, clean ulcer bases. These are people who have a really low risk of rebleeding on medical management alone, and endoscopic hemostasis is not really required. How best should we control the bleeding? Uh, so this is kind of a busy table, but I wanted to use it to sort of highlight some of the interesting aspects of what we have good data for and what we have maybe less good data for. Uh, because and as, as devices have evolved and as endoscopic hemostasis has evolved, a lot the data really favors a lot of the earlier stuff because we were comparing the earlier devices against no endoscopic hemostasis, whereas a lot of the new stuff has had to be compared to you know, current standard of care. And so it gets a little trickier to do a good non-inferiority trial for them. So the stuff that uh, got a strong recommendation from the panel were things like bipolar coagulation, which we still use a lot, and then stuff like heater probes and uh, injection of absolute alcohol, which I can't say I've ever seen done. Uh, but they were all compared to not doing anything. So they showed a benefit and got a pretty strong recommendation. Uh, devices that got a, a suggestion were things like CLIPS, which obviously we use frequently in clinical practice. They've been compared against epinephrine injection alone, which I'll discuss a little later, is no longer standard of care, and they were better than epinephrine injection alone. And then when compared to thermal therapy, they were roughly equivalent. So that was enough to say, okay, maybe this is something we should be doing. Likewise, there's a couple new additions uh, to the guidelines this time around. Argon plasma coagulation, basically using electrical current through argon glass to uh, gas to cauterize a bleeding ulcer, uh, did get a suggestion this time. It's been compared to saline injection, almost doing nothing, uh, and was better than that. Uh, and that was roughly equivalent to epinephrine plus a second modality. So that was enough to get it a suggestion this time. And additionally, soft coagulation, which is a relatively new electrosurgical setting that is thought to cause a little less deep tissue injury with cautery, uh, also got a suggestion. And then as I mentioned before, epinephrine injection alone is not recommended when it's been compared to other monotherapies such as CLIPS or thermal therapy, it has been outperformed. Uh, so in, in general, for injecting epinephrine, we should really be trying to do something else too. And then there were a couple of fun new devices I wanted to talk about this time around. The first one is uh, TC325, uh, which is better known as Hemospray. This is a, a mineral powder that is inert and stored in a compressed canister and then sprayed onto a bleeding vessel with a little catheter. And when it's exposed to liquid, it forms this kind of cohesive plaster that sort of uh, forms over top of the ulcer and uh, tamponades it. Um, it sloughs within about 24 hours. So it's been out for a few years now. A few other guidelines in Europe and the like have suggested that this only be used as a bridge to therapy, uh, some other definitive therapy because it's supposed to fall off in 24 hours. But there was a uh, trial from Hong Kong that was published in GIE a couple of years ago that suggested it might actually be good as a monotherapy, just spray and you're done. Uh, comparing this against epinephrine, uh, or excuse me, CLIPS or thermal therapy plus minus epinephrine, uh, there was 12.3% further bleeding with hemospray alone 
versus 15.4% with current standard of care. So uh, the uh, ACG said, hey, this seems like enough to us. Maybe you can use this on its own. And it got a, re uh, a suggestion uh, to be used in the new guidelines. However, it is very expensive. It's about $2,500 a cartridge as of the time of the publication of the guideline in 2021. So not for everybody. Additionally, the other uh, kind of new exciting hemostatic device have been over the scope clips, which you might hear us call Avescos. Um, these are clips that are mounted to the tip of the scope and are deployed almost like we would deploy a bander uh, and form almost this kind of like bear trap closure on a, a bleeding ulcer. Um, for these guidelines, they were recommended as an option for recurrent ulcer bleeding based primarily on this publication from gastroenterology from 2018 that showed that uh, over the scope clips cut further bleeding uh, in recurrent bleeds from 57.6% with standard therapy down to 15.2%. There was also a trial just a couple of years ago from the UCLA group uh, that suggested that these could also be good index therapy. Uh, a randomized trial, again, of you know, standard therapy versus over the scope clips, uh, where there was a 4% rebleeding risk with over the scope clips versus 28% with standard therapy. There were a few methodological quibbles with this trial though, and the ACG uh, was not able to reach a recommendation to use uh, the over-the-scope clip as index therapy, but potentially as a rescue therapy. So after endoscopy, what should we be doing with PPIs? Well, the new guidelines say we should be giving a high-dose PPI for at least three days. But the uh, big update this time is that intermittent uh, therapy, either IV or PO, uh, is also recommended uh, compared to continuous drip, which was the only recommendation from the 2012 guidelines. Uh, this was derived from a meta-analysis of eight randomized comparisons, uh, four of which looked at continuous PPI, two intermittent IV, and two intermittent PO all of which led to reduced further bleeding, mortality, and surgery compared to placebo. And on subgroup analyses, continuous and inter intermittent were roughly equivalent. Um, so you may see more uh, protonics 40 IVBID afterwards, as opposed to a continuous drip every time. As for the duration of PPI, the panel uh, suggested that it should last for at least two weeks. A uh, randomized trial of pretty sick bleeders with a rock hall score of six or higher uh, who had successful endoscopic treatment and then that continuous IV PPI were then randomized to either uh, twice daily or once daily PPI for two weeks and then both groups got uh, daily PPI afterwards and there was significantly less rebleeding if you did it twice daily afterwards, 10.8% versus 28.7%. There's not a ton of data though for longer durations, and you'll see that we often will treat for four to eight weeks after an ulcer bleed. The uh, panel cannot reach a recommendation on that sort of duration, but certainly at least for two weeks, we should be keeping that high to uh, the twice daily uh, PPI going. As for recurrent bleeding, no big changes here in the new guidelines. We still recommend repeating upper endoscopy uh, the, there was a New England Journal article from 19, uh, 1999 randomizing patients to repeat endoscopy versus going straight to surgery. And there was further, uh, more further bleeding with endoscopy, but there was no difference in mortality and there were way fewer uh, uh, significant um, uh, complications. So based on this, the panels felt pretty comfortable saying, yeah, we should be doing another endoscopy. 
what about IR? Should we be embolizing these patients? Well, unfortunately, there's no randomized trial comparing endoscopy to IR directly, uh, but there is a meta-analysis comparing embolization versus surgery that showed similar results. Again, maybe more further bleeding, but no change in mortality and a lot fewer complications. So the panel ended up saying, okay, uh, upper end a repeat endoscopy is a good idea, but if you can't get hemostasis uh, or they're still bleeding, then maybe IR should be next. So that brings us to the end of the upper GI bleeding guidelines. Just to summarize the kind of big updates and the uh, major points, uh, we should now be thinking about discharge with very close follow-up uh, for a GBS of zero to one. Uh, the hemoglobin of seven is still king, but you might be thinking about eight for cardiovascular disease, and you don't have to wait to transfuse for unstable patients. We should be doing an upper endoscopy within 24 hours, but they couldn't actually reach a recommendation about pre-endoscopic PPI, but we should probably still be doing it. Uh, Device-wise, there's a couple new kids on the block, including hemospray and over-the-scope clips. We should give a high-dose PPI afterwards for three days, though that now no longer has to be a continuous drip could be intermittent IV or even theoretically intermittent PO. Uh, and then they should get a twice daily PPI for two weeks. And if they bleed again, we should do another upper endoscopy, maybe go to IR if that fails. So uh, next up is the uh, joint clinical guideline from the uh, American College of Gastroenterology and the Canadian Association of Gastroenterology uh, on the management of anticoagulants and antiplatelets. This has been I'd say a little controversial and there's been not a ton of uptake right away. So it's been nice, particularly for me to review and also uh, dig into things with you here. Uh, so what's new? Um, this is uh, a little more rapid of an update than certainly the upper GI bleeding guideline. The last set of guidelines had come out uh, from the American Society of Gastrointestinal Endoscopy in just 2016, but there's been a lot of changes. There's now, um, reversal agents for the DOAX, um, and the panel itself is a lot more uh, multidisciplinary this time around. There were a bunch of the same docs from the ASG guidelines, but they also brought on a cardiologist as well as a thrombosis expert, uh, James Dukitis, I think I'm saying that right, from McMaster in Canada, who uh, whose name you'll see over a bunch of the important uh, trials that we'll be talking about a little later here. Uh, so again, these were structured uh, using grade methodology, uh, answering PICO questions, but an important caveat is that these are, were all conditional recommendations based on low or very low certainty of evidence. So there's a dearth of good evidence here and still potentially some room for controversy. So this is sort of split into acute GI bleeding and the periendoscopic period for elective endoscopy. So let's start with GI bleeding. Uh, first, a few definitions of what they define as GI bleeding from the guideline. It had to be observable bleeding, melana, hematochesia, hematemesis, uh, not necessarily a patient whose hemoglobin is just kind of drifting lower, but we're not seeing over bleeding. And then life-threatening bleeding was an important definition in this guideline. Uh, and this was defined as overt bleeding with hypovolemic shock, pressors, maybe going to surgery, uh, or if they needed to transfuse more than five units of blood or had a decline of more than five uh, grams per deciliter in their hemoglobin. So we'll start with warfarin. The big update here was that FFP was not recommended for your run-in-the-mill uh, bleed while on warfarin, whereas previously it had been uh, suggested as equivalent to perthrombin cofactor concentrates 
in the ASGE guidelines. Uh, a couple of pertinent studies, uh, an early study from like 1997 suggested that uh, the reversal with warfarin, uh, with excuse me, with FFP was a little less robust uh, when 14 patients were given uh, FFP in, uh, in rapid reversal. They only got to a range of uh, 1.6 to 3.8 for their INR. Uh, there was also a uh, pretty large, um, uh, large trial looking at around uh, 300 patients with uh, on warfarin for thromboembolism who developed uh, acute bleeding requiring reversal. About a quarter of those were patients with GI bleeding. And on a multivariate analysis that was granted, uh, maybe not fully adjusted for co-founders, uh, it was suggested that FFP might be associated with some increased thrombosis. And likewise, there was a, a pretty large randomized trial from circulation comparing FFP and uh, PCC directly. And in the FFP arm, there was, you know, similar uh, rates of successful hemostasis, but fluid overload happened in around 12.8%, thrombosis in around 6.4%, mortality in 5.8%. So looking at all of this, the panel said, okay, uh, you can consider FFP if someone's got like a really life-threatening bleed and their INR is uh, substantially exceeding the therapeutic range but maybe your run-of-the-mill patients, we really shouldn't be uh, giving this uh, as frequently as we had been. Uh, and based primarily on that trial from circulation, PCC was favored over FFP when you have to give a reversal agent for a, a patient bleeding on warfarin, um, based mostly on this suggestion of a more rapid and consistent INR reversal uh, that was derived from a network meta-analysis comparing the two. Uh, they actually could reach a recommendation for PCC over placebo, and they've kind of gone back and snowballed some trials from the previous guidelines and uh, sort of uh, compiled all those patients together. And actually, this showed, you know, kind of similar rates for further bleeding thrombosis and 30-day mortality to what had been shown for FFP. So uh, again, the panel said, okay, you know, PCC is probably better than FFP, uh, but uh, really, we should just be thinking about it in life-threatening GI bleeds with a significant uh, supertherapeutic INR. Another controversial update, vitamin K was no longer recommended in these updated guidelines, based mostly on the biological rationale that most of the reversal that happens with vitamin K happens in 24 to 48 hours, and a lot of the critical events that have to happen in resuscitation and uh, hemostasis for upper GI bleeds have to happen sooner. There was also this meta-analysis uh, that suggested a small but not quite statistically significant increase in mortality and thrombotic events in patients that were not bleeding, who had a supertherapeutic INR on warfarin and were given vitamin K. So weighing that, the panel said, maybe we really shouldn't be uh, uh, giving this for most leads. Moving on to the DOACs, uh, PCCs were examined in uh, reversal for DOACs, but there is not a ton of evidence. And so the panel said we uh, suggested that we probably not be giving this as uh, routinely for uh, DOAC leads. Uh, there was a single small perspective cohort of five matched patients where there really wasn't any difference in hemostatic effectiveness if they were given PCC versus not. Uh, so the panel said, okay, maybe we can think about of PCC in life-threatening bleeds uh, in patients who have taken a DOAC in the last 24 hours. 
but otherwise your average patient who's dropped a point or two on Eloquis, we should probably hold off. Getting into the, uh, the bespoke uh, reversal agents for DOAX, uh, starting with uh, uh, Praxibind and Dabigatran, uh, these did not get a recommendation in the new guidelines. Uh, similarly for uh, your run-of-the-mill bleeder, uh, this was based mostly on a retrospective cohort that showed no uh, statistically significant difference in mortality or thromboembolism rate, and then a subgroup analysis of the trial that had really gotten Praxbind approved that showed there was still a mortality of around 11.1% and thromboembolism rate of around 3.6%. So the panel thought that this represented kind of a limited benefit and the overall expense of treatment was quite high. So again, I'm kind of sounding like a broken record here, but if it's a life-threatening bleed uh, in someone who's gotten a DOAC uh, or has gotten a uh, dabigatran in the last 24 hours, you can consider this, but most patients, you can probably just hold the Pradaxa and see how they do. Similar recommendation for indexinet alpha for rivaroxaban and apixaban. We know that indexinet alpha leads to a pretty good laboratory reversal of the effects of uh, anti-10A agents and probably leads to some pretty good uh, clinical hemostasis. Uh, but the panel looked at this New England Journal, Journal article and were concerned that the uh, definitions of good and excellent hemostasis were a little discrepant from what we usually define hemostasis, successful hemostasis as. Um, and also had some concerns about the comparator arm as well. Uh, based on, on a $49,000 price tag for the high dose regimen at the time of the guidelines, they said, okay, once again, you can think about this in life-threatening bleeding, but not your average patient. There was also a new recommendation this time around for uh, how to manage antiplatelet agents. Uh, Specifically, the uh, new guidelines say that we should not be giving platelet transfusions to patients who are not thrombocytopenic purely for the purposes of reversing the effect of an antiplatelet agent. There was this trial from CGH in 2017 uh, that showed uh, increased mortality and a small but not quite statistically significant uh, increase in further bleeding and thrombotic events with this practice. So based on this potential harm, and the lack of significant benefit, the panel said, let's not be doing this unless somebody's got a platelet count of under 50,000. As for aspirin, we should not be interrupting these for most patients with bleeding. Um, and if it is interrupted, we should be resuming it afterwards right away. Um, thromboxane synthesis usually takes about seven to 10 days to normalize. So stopping it for a day or two before endoscopy probably isn't changing the hemostatic milieu very much. Uh, additionally, there was a Canadian trial suggesting there was no difference in further bleeding or mortality if aspirin was interrupted before an upper endoscopy. And additionally, another trial comparing giving placebo after a bleed to aspirin for eight weeks uh, found increased cardiovascular, cerebral, and GI complications in the placebo arms. They felt pretty strongly that we should be getting people on aspirin right away after bleeds if it stopped at all. Uh, of note, these recommendations were not designed to apply to patients on primary prevention with aspirin, though I haven't been keeping up as much with primary prevention lately, but I understand it's under a lot more scrutiny. Uh, so the guidelines say 
we were specifically not talking about this, but really think about whether they should still be on the aspirin for primary prevention. So that's the end of the acute GI bleeding side of things. And uh, this is a really helpful kind of flow chart that came out in a uh, clinical dissemination tool that was published alongside these new guidelines. There's some great flow charts in there. So if you're finding the guidelines a little murky on first pass, like I really did, these are a great ways to say, okay, what are you actually saying with these recommendations? So for patients on an acute, uh, having an acute GI bleed, if they're having a life-threatening bleed and they're on warfarin, uh, PCC, K-Centra is recommended. If they're having a life-threatening bleed on a DOAC, you can think about one of the DOAC-specific reversal agents or PCC. If they're not having a life-threatening bleed, the new guidelines suggest against using FFP and couldn't reach a recommendation about PCC and also suggested against using vitamin K. Uh, as for DOACs, uh, they suggested against the bespoke reversal agents or PCC for non-life-threatening bleeds. <clears throat> and then for the antiplatelet agents, if they're not thrombocytopenic, we shouldn't be giving them platelet transfusions just to reverse antiplatelets. And if they're on aspirin, we really shouldn't be stopping it. But if it is stopped, resume it right away after endoscopic hemostasis is performed. Next up is elective endoscopy, uh, which we get a we have a lot of questions about on the outpatient side of things. Um, first off though, there's a group of high-risk patients that we shouldn't be doing elective endoscopy on. These are people who are within three months of uh, thromboembolism or a stroke or an acute coronary event. And then within six months of a drug-eluting stent uh, without an acute coronary event or within 12 months of a drug-eluting stent with one. So these patients, we should really be holding off on any sort of elective endoscopy. They really don't need a screening colonoscopy at this point. It's also worth kind of defining what's a high bleeding risk procedure and what's a low risk procedure as we get into these uh, recommendations. Um, there's some controversy and not a lot of consensus about what's high risk and what's low risk, but generally it's suggested that a 30-day bleeding risk of more than 2% lands you in the high risk category. These are things like an ERCP with sphincterotomy, an endoscopic ultrasound with a biopsy, but also things like just taking out a one centimeter polyp, which can happen pretty frequently on just a screening or a surveillance colonoscopy. Whereas a low or moderate risk includes most other kind of, most other run-of-the-mill endoscopic procedures, upper endoscopy with biopsy, colonoscopy with biopsy. There really wasn't much recommendation though about small polyps. So to start, what do we do with warfarin? Um, what I thought was a hugely controversial rec new recommendation, but on further review turned out to be an old recommendation that was copied forward. Uh, low risk procedures, in theory, we should be continuing warfarin all the way through, which is unchanged from the ASGE guidelines. I will say in practice, because it is so hard to tell if you know your standard screening or surveillance colonoscopy is gonna be low risk or high risk because you just don't know what size of polyp you're going to find. Usual practice is often to treat most of these uh, procedures as high risk. As for high risk, a five-day hold is recommended, uh, but we got a little more conservative about who we think bridging is helpful for. Uh, this time around, it's patients with mechanical valves, a chats to score of greater than five, or a previous embolism while their warfarin has been interrupted whereas the ASG was much more liberal about who we should be bridging. Uh, this is primarily based on the bridge trial, which I'll get into here in a second. 
But first off, the justification for continuing warfarin on low risk procedures was based on these kind of five small cohort studies, one of which suggested a reduction in thromboembolic events, which did not reach uh, statistical significance. And then when all five studies were pulled together, there were no bleeding events on continuous warfarin after a low risk endoscopic procedure, but there was a really wide confidence interval of zero to 12.5%. So the panel said that you should really keep the warfarin going, but if there's a high risk or advanced endoscopic procedure plan, uh, it should probably be interrupted. As for the bridge trial, this was a big one from uh, 2015 in the New England Journal, and you might notice that the first author is that guy, James Dukitis, who is the thrombosis expert that served on the panel this time around. Uh, this was a randomized trial comparing uh, patients with AFib on warfarin undergoing some sort of procedure with a bleeding risk, not just GI bleeds, but about a quarter, not just endoscopy, I should say, but about a quarter of those were endoscopic procedures. Uh, they did uh, randomize them to a low molecular weight heparin bridge or no bridge and excluded patients with mechanical heart valves and a few of those high risk uh, criteria that we mentioned before. Um, ultimately, not bridging was not inferior to bridging for prevention of arterial thromboembolism. And there was also a decreased risk of major bleeding uh, if you didn't bridge, uh, just 1.3% versus 3.2%. There was also another randomized trial called PERIOP2 that came out after these new guidelines, but that they did kind of mention in passing, uh, which showed similar results for, uh, but also included some patients who had a mechanical heart valve. So based on all of this data, the panel said, maybe we should be a little more conservative about who we are bridging. But granted, a lot of that needs to be a multidisciplinary discussion between the performing uh, proceduralist as well as the patient's cardiologist or hematologist. Uh, as for the DOACs, um, the gastroenterologists on uh, teams will remember the uh, all these tables on the left. We used to uh, stratify the hold of the DOAC before a procedure based on creatinine clearance, which was derived from the studies that had gotten each of these individual DOACs approved from the pharmacokinetic studies. Um, but there's a new recommendation now that's much more simple. You hold it one day if it's a low risk procedure, you hold it two to three days if it's a high risk procedure. And this new recommendation was came out of the PAUSE cohort study. And there again is James Dukitis. Um, this was a cohort study of over 3000 patients with AFib on a DOAC using this kind of simplified hold strategy uh, and then resuming within one day after a low risk procedure and two to three days for high risk. And there was an overall low GI bleeding incidence of about 2.5% and very low risks of thromboembolic events or mortality. Uh, the GI only post hoc data is um, in the process of getting published and will come out pretty soon. But with this and probably with James Zuchitis on the panel, they said, okay, let's make things a little simpler with how we do our DOAC holds. For dual antiplatelet therapy, this hasn't really changed. If they're on aspirin and Plavix together, the suggestion is to hold Plavix beforehand and continue the aspirin. Uh, there was uh, the one big update here was a Chinese trial comparing, a uh, randomized trial comparing uh, Plavix for seven days versus placebo before endoscopy. And there was a slightly larger proportion of patients who uh, developed delayed or immediate postpolypectomy bleeding on continuous Plavix. No huge surprise there. And then there was no significant difference in cardioembolic events. So they said probably worth holding the Plavix for five to seven days before. 
Monotherapy was a little harder to parse out. We know we should continue aspirin. There's very, very rare bleeding risks on uh, most GI procedures. Uh, and then a meta-analysis of four randomized trials suggested an uh, uh, increase in thrombotic events with aspirin interruption, though this did not reach statistical significance, but still probably worth continuing aspirin. Plavix monotherapy, they couldn't reach a recommendation, which was a change from before. Um, there's really not a lot of data out there. There was like one retrospective cohort in hot snare polypectomy that suggested there was actually more bleeding when you interrupted the Plavix versus continuing the Plavix and just didn't seem biologically plausible and really spoke to the really no, low numbers we had to work with. So they said, we just really don't know. And as it comes to resuming medications after endoscopy, I was hoping they would come down a little harder on when we should be doing this, but they did not. Uh, they said they couldn't reach a recommendation for starting it again the same day versus waiting one to seven days. They had previously recommended starting warfarin day of, uh, but the, uh, they actually ended up throwing out a couple of the studies they had used to justify that in the ASG guidelines based on uh, uh, what they thought was a non-valid uh, comparator arm and unclear resumption of warfarin uh, in the trials. So they ended up saying, ah, we don't have enough data to uh, say whether or not we should start right away with warfarin. Similarly for DOAX, uh, there was really just one prospective cohort looking at this question, uh, comparing resuming day zero to three versus after day three. There was actually more bleeding if they resumed after day three, but it was unclear if some of these patients were getting bridged as well as uh, they weren't matched particularly well. So the uh, panel said we can't really make a uh, justification one way or the other. And there was basically no data on Plavix itself. So again, getting to these summary slides, it's pretty small text, so I'll just kind of jump ahead, uh, but it's worth taking a look if you're curious about this stuff at all. Uh, but the biggest overall changes here uh, in active bleeding, we are not really doing DOAC reversal agents in most bleeds, but you can still think about it for uh, someone who's got a life-threatening bleed. Uh, likewise, you can think about it, uh, PCC, uh, but probably, uh, you know, justification is a little weaker there. Um, PCC is favored over FFP for life-threatening bleeds on warfarin, um, but neither is really strongly recommended if it's not a life-threatening bleed. Vitamin K was not recommended this time around, which I'm sure is going to be a little controversial. Uh, and then don't give a platelet transfusion if the patient's not thrombocytopenic just for an antiplatelet agent. And for elective endoscopy, we've got this new strategy for our DOAC holds that's much more simple. And for warfarin, uh, bridging is, uh, has become a little bit more conservative, uh, but still the same five-day hold is recommended. But again, these are all conditional recommendations with very low certainty of evidence. So a lot of controversy, a lot of wiggle room here. So that brings me to the end of the two guidelines. Thank you guys so much for your attention. What questions do we have? Dr. Holmes, thank you so much for your talk. Just a ton of clarity on what had felt like complex questions, some with pretty clear answers. So um, I'll go ahead and invite any questions from the room here in the auditorium. So I just have to thank you. This was amazing. You answered so many questions that plague us. Um, we already got our question answered about aspirin, which we've been struggling with because we have someone with a Watchman device who bled. 
Um, we have another patient you didn't actually, this wasn't covered because it's a lower GI bleed question, but what is the risk? Do you know the risk of re-bleeding in people who bled from AVMs? And would you never use a DOAC again for their high CHADS VAS score? Because that's hard to treat. I know that doesn't it's an unfair question because it wasn't what you covered it's today. A, no, it, it's a very challenging question um, and not one that the guidelines could really get into. Uh, I would say in general, um, when in doubt, this should really be a multidisciplinary discussion between the gastroenterologist, the primary doctor and, you know, a cardiologist or hematologist and if involved, um, you know, if you preparing for this talk, I listened to a lot of the podcasts with the first author, Nina Abram. And the thing she kept saying in the podcast is uh, there's no real tug of war between the GI tract and the heart. The heart always wins. We can fix a GI bleed, um, but it's a lot harder to replace myocardium or brain. Um, so unfortunately, I don't know that I have a good road to answer, but definitely uh, I would highly encourage a multidisciplinary discussion. Thanks uh, for this. So one thing that came up um, for resuming anticoagulation uh, looks like the recommendation was trying to decide between same day versus within seven days. So just to extrapolate from that should always start within seven days and not beyond is my understanding. Yeah, I think that's I think that's justifiable. Um, Yes, you're right. The, the the new guidelines didn't make a recommendation for same day versus one to seven days. Um, but again, you know, if you're waiting much beyond seven days, that thromboembolic risk really starts to creep up and you can really get yourself in trouble. So yes, we should be resuming most patients within seven days, even if we do a high risk procedure. Great, I'll go ahead and uh, pose another question here, partially from our online audience. So thank you for addressing the duration of PPI therapy. Um, I believe it was high dose for two weeks after a higher risk um, ulcer. Um, the understanding was that that was specific to when an ulcer was found. Um, and you also note that the PPIs seem to be often continued longer than that. Um, could you just speak a little bit more to the duration in general for recommended PPI therapy after EGD and perhaps depending on what diagnosis is found? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, the, I would say the main caveat for a lot of these recommendations is by and large, these are ulcer bleeding recommendations. And uh, so a lot of the stuff for like AVMs and Dulafois and stuff are just kind of extrapolating for that. So. Yes, the uh, overall recommendations are going to be weaker for the less common stigmata of bleeding. Um, we really should be doing definitely that three-day, really high dose, intermittent or continuous uh, treatment for a high-risk stigmata. And again, high-risk stigmata are things like actively bleeding visible vessel, uh, a, a, a visible vessel that's not actively bleeding, maybe an adherent clot too. Anyone who's getting endoscopic hemostasis, we should definitely be doing three days of uh, high dose and then uh, two weeks of twice daily PPI thereafter. And then beyond that, things get fuzzy. Um, and that's, you know, the guidelines were very much, you know, wishy-washy about longer durations. And I'll say in practice, a lot of what we see is that 
especially for gastric ulcers where, you know, if there's some question about, oh, could this be malignant? And for a lot of big gastric ulcers, we're bringing them back in eight weeks for another endoscopy to get biopsies. And so you'll see us kind of continue a PPI through that, at least those eight weeks up until endoscopy, uh, just to keep things kind of clear in terms of what we can attribute uh, healing-wise to PPI versus if we stop it four weeks before and then we're like, well, were things better before? It gets a little fuzzy. But again, there's not a huge evidence base for that. Great, thanks. Glad to know that there isn't a clear answer. We're not just missing it. <laughs> um, yeah, one additional question here, which again may be a, a challenging area. I think we were um, surprised in ways regarding the recommendations against things like FFP and vitamin K and acknowledgement that that might be controversial. I wonder if you could comment in general on the role for INR prior to endoscopy um, and maybe also not necessarily in patients on warfarin, but who have liver disease or other problems, wondering if there's an action step to be taken in response to the number. Yes, and one thing that I, I didn't mention that got dropped from the ASG guidelines to these new guidelines was that uh, the ASG guidelines had suggested a range of 1.5 to 2.5 before endoscopy. And that was not really mentioned in these new guidelines. Um, that should be taken with the, a grain of salt that that's probably more pertinent for someone who's on a vitamin K antagonist like warfarin um, compared to someone in uh, some, someone with cirrhosis where an INR is not a very good representation of their overall prothrombotic versus antithrombotic milieu. Um, and something like a thromboelastography is probably a better representation, but really not super easily obtainable. Um, so, I. Uh, there isn't a good guideline to say we should really be getting a serotic to an INR of, you know, under three or whatever. I will say in practice, a lot of the times we're still kind of getting to that 1.5 to 2.5 range, and that's probably okay, but can I answer that with the guidelines? Not really. Thank you. Challenging area, challenging question. An area for more research. That's right. Um, well, thank you. I think I'll take one last invite for any questions in the room. Looks like we've answered those online. One more. Sorry, I'm the one who always has questions. Um, so it's a little counterintuitive that we could continue warfarin for a low-risk procedure, but that we have to stop the DOAC, um, given that in general DOACs have less bleeding risk. Um, and my guess is that the proportion of screening colonoscopies that ultimately end up being low risk because you might find a polyp, but they're usually less than a centimeter. Um, should we maybe just stop? Like, should this be our QI project? That we just stop, you know, holding warfarin before screening colonoscopies and take the small risk that they'll have to do another prep and a repeat procedure? So I'll say, um, This kind of gets into what's happened sort of culturally in gastroenterology around this recommendation for the last six years versus what we say we should be doing. Um, I will say, by and large, most GI groups are erring on the side of caution, and maybe we shouldn't be, it's true. 
Um, but we're generally erring towards, we don't know what's going to be a high risk procedure. It's, you know, so inconvenient for a patient to reprep and come back. We'll just treat everyone as high risk. Um, so that low risk recommendation, we almost never end up using. And it, I was honestly surprised to come back and find that, oh, this has actually been in the books for a while. We're just really not doing it. Um, <clears throat> I, I think it would take some pretty significant um, cultural change for uh, gastroenterologists to feel comfortable that we're just going to keep rolling with an INR of 2.5 and we don't know what we're going to find. Um, but, you know, again, this, you know, tug of war of heart versus GI, heart, heart wins, maybe we should be. Um, but it, I, I think, um, I think what we'll see, and certainly what we've seen so far since these guidelines came out in March, was that people have gener generally continued to view all procedures as potentially high risk and have erred on the side of interrupting. Um, as for the DOACs, you mentioned, um, why are we interrupting them when their bleeding risk is theoretically lower compared to warfarin? Um, the ASG guidelines had recommended that we continue them for low risk procedures and then really only got into those you know, funky tables for the high risk procedures. Um, the, the fact that they're now all being recommended to be held is mostly from this pause cohort and, uh, and ultimately kind of moved because again, we were kind of treating everybody as high risk anyway. So I hope that answers that. Well, we are nearly at the top of the hour. Dr. Holmes, thank you so much for your careful review of the data and the guidelines and really bringing that expertise to us here. Thanks so much. Thank you, everyone.